Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. TopTal is an amazing company. They've got over 2,500 developers and designers in their network. They've screened them extensively so that you get to work with only the top 3%. So basically, you just let TopTal know what you're looking for, they understand your business and technical requirements, and they search for the right person for the job. You don't have to do all of the screening and interviews that you normally would, and they make it really easy for you. You can even do part-time hires that are a few hours a week, and full-time hires too. You can get an amazing no-risk free trial for up to two weeks. Get started with TopTal by emailing laura at startupgrind.com. The best part is that you can work with the developer and designer, and if you're not satisfied by the end of the trial, you don't pay anything. TopTal pays the talent. So to get started with this trial, email laura at startupgrind.com. Hey there, and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a great interview with Ben Einstein, general partner and co-founder of Bolt, an early stage venture capital fund that invests at the intersection of hardware and software. Prior to starting Bolt, Ben ran Brainstream Design, a product design and development consultancy in Massachusetts. Ben has been directly responsible for bringing a long list of products to market covering diverse sectors including consumer electronics, high performance audio, sporting goods, and green energy. Ben developed his engineering skill sets at MIT. Let's listen into Ben Einstein interviewed by our Startup Crime Boston Chapter Director, Carlos Cardenas. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was an excellent introduction. <laughs> Thanks for the clapping. Thank you, Betty. Um, thank you, Ben, for joining us. Really excited to have you here. Sure. So I just wanted to start the conversation by asking you a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, where you grew up, where you started, uh, uh, where were your first steps and uh, where you went to high school, college, just give us a little bit of a sense of uh, all your, the above. Um, yeah, so I've always been like a tinker. So how many people here are like hardware people at all? A few. Okay, cool, sweet. Um, so I kind of started. My my uh, my dad was super cheap, uh, handy guy. And so whenever things would break, instead of calling the person to fix the thing, he would call his ten year old son in or whatever and be like, "The dishwasher broke. You need to fix it." Um, <laughs> which is an interesting way to learn uh, about the world. And so I was always super curious about physical things when I was growing up and uh, kind of just rode that train until, I guess, today, um, where I'm still still building stuff all the time. Um, I think I hopefully fix less dishwashers now and build more products from scratch. But uh, I used to run um, a design consultancy, so not too different from Pivotal, um, but totally different because it focuses on hardware. Um, and so you probably have heard of like IDEO, which is probably the best known uh, sort of company in that space, which typically does sort of new product development for usually large companies, sometimes startups. That's uh, usually a bad idea, which we can talk about more. Um, and, uh, and sort of Bolt grew out of that as a better way to help young, young little tiny hardware companies kind of get off the ground. So uh, I, sorry, I missed college. Um, I went there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went to this crazy school in um, Western Massachusetts called Hampshire, which probably most people don't know, um, which is uh, part of this five college thing with UMass Amherst and Amherst College and Smith and 
it's a pretty interesting place, uh, where there's no grades, no tests, and no majors, uh, which is a very interesting place to go to college. Um, and so I just found that it was like the single best decision I've ever made. Uh, it creates this really interesting environment where uh, people are uh, sort of forced to think on their own, which I think is a very helpful skill to have as a person and a person who is in the startup world running a company. And so um, I was always around people building stuff uh, kind of in their own way, whether that's furniture or cars or you know products or whatever. It was always a, uh, from the point of view of accessing the world through through built sort of sort of construction, um, and that's a, just a sort of fundamental part of the way I think. So, so what was the first experience where you were combining making and entrepreneurship? If you, if you do, you have a like a moment with the two clicked? Oh, man. I never thought about it that way. It was it was always like uh, I like doing this thing, and sometimes people pay you things to do things that you do well, uh, and so it kind of just happens uh, over time. And I, I found this actually almost the inverse correlation. The less I thought about money, the more people paid me, uh, which always was a weird thing to realize. Um, and so uh, like. That was very true at this consultancy um, that I started, and when we were really trying to like get all this business and like work really hard, it was it was uh, you know it was really a grind. Uh, and then as soon as we just relaxed and focused on things that we really loved working on, it became really easy. Um, and it was sort of an interesting lesson that I learned to do things that you love, and then everything is fun. Um, you also study cinema, is that correct? Cinema production, is that true? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Oh, <laughs> my bad, my bad. but I could. Maybe I have a dark ha past. Um, so, but. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you started Bold, how that sure. came came to happen. Yeah, so so um, uh, this previous company that I ran, which is the first company that I started, um, was based on a service model. So people would come, it's kind of like invention for hires. People would like come up to our door and say, hey, we're trying to build this thing, we don't know how to do it. Um, here's you know half a million bucks and spend a year and you know here are prototypes and deliverables and sort of the standard sort of service business model. Um, and you know that's great. You can you know do well, make a lot of money, get to work on some pretty interesting stuff, get to work with really interesting people, uh, which is probably the best part of this sort of service consultancy world. Is lots of interesting people are attracted to that way of working because they like working on lots of different things uh, versus one thing for a long time. And so I tried uh, I tried really hard to um, be sort of open minded about working with smaller companies that didn't have the money to pay us. And uh, mainly because it was fun. And we'd get these really interesting people that would come in and be like, oh, I'm this inventor for this thing, and I don't know how to manufacture it. Can you like, help me figure it out? Uh, I don't have any money, but I'd love to one day. And here's some of the company, or here's royalties, or whatever the thing might be. Um, almost all of those things failed miserably, by the way. Um, but uh, they were super fun. Everybody loved working on these products for these really tiny little companies. And so I started to think about there's got to be like a better way for really small companies that need uh, really services from, from a sort of consultancy um, uh, can, can sort of access that in a way that doesn't cost them half of the money they just raised for their seed financing from their VC, uh, which is what a lot of companies do, is they go raise money and they just give it to someone else. And that's silly. Uh, and so, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, and so um, I, started, I started to come to Boston, actually, to spend a lot of time with people. Uh, very early in the sort of hardware kind of world about five or six years ago, um, uh, so people, uh, you, you may remember this, this guy, Ben Rubin, uh, started this company called Zio, which uh, is dead now, but it was this weird thing you wear in your head and it would tell you how you sleep. It's kind of like Fitbit, um, before Fitbit was really around. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's sort of not good, but it, you know, it was an interesting company. It was like the first interesting startup, hardware startup in like the recent generation uh, in Boston. 
And um, I spent time with uh, this company called Sphero, uh, which has now become pretty interesting. You know, this little white ball thing, which was kind of a weird company until uh, uh, this pretty interesting story that maybe we can tell later about um, Michael Eisner meeting the company, uh, the guy who uh, runs Disney, and showing him a picture of the new BB-8 uh, drone. And that now this company is wildly successful, selling hundreds of thousands of units a week uh, because the little ball has a little head and is painted orange and is now a whole different thing than the white ball. Um, and you know, so it's so starting to talk to all these people saying, hey, you know, I've, uh, I guess this is customer research. Uh, hey, you know, I've bit brought, I don't know, 25, 30 products to market as a, you know, as a consultancy. And uh, I'm seeing all these hardware companies struggling. Like, what could I do to help you kind of thing? And so, so I talked to probably two dozen companies in that, in that sort of light. And every single one of them was like, oh, yeah, well, like, it would really be nice to hire a consultancy, which is what I thought everybody was going to be like, oh, we need you. Please come here. Um, and it was kind of like, yeah, that's kind of nice. But I have all these other problems. Like, I can't raise money because people don't want to invest in hardware companies. Or I can't find space to work because they're all co-working spaces and you can't solder and you can't cut stuff with machines. Um, or I don't know how to deal with Best Buy and Walmart and how to get into retail. Um, and I don't know how to deal with manufacturing. So it was like a huge list of things. And being the uh, sort of naive person that I tend to always be, I said, oh, yeah, I can do all that stuff. Uh, and so that's kind of where, where Bolt came from, um, was a way to provide this almost like toolbox of things that hardware companies, it's not that hard. Uh, it's just different than what people are used to doing. And there isn't a you know, Quora for how to manufacture stuff in China, unfortunately. Or if there is, it's not very good. Um, and so it, this was uh, sort of a platform that was built to help these young little hardware companies kind of get off the ground. So did you start by yourself, or you, you had partners and people to help you out? Yeah, so it's crazy to start a company by yourself. Um, so don't do that. Uh, I tried to do that for a little bit, and then realized that that was crazy. Uh, and so I, um, I did sort of like the founder dating thing, which I think probably some of you have done before, where you're kind of like, this, seem, this guy seems cool. I can spend time with this guy. Uh, and then uh, I don't know how intimate we should go, but uh, I'll tell you a fairly interesting story where um, my business partner now, uh, Axel Bashara, who's been around Boston for, he's part of the furniture here, as he says. I've uh, been here for 29 years. Um, he was uh, a partner at a firm uh, called, used to be called Atlas Venture, which is now called Accomplice. And he's one of the very early partners there. Uh, he'd, he'd been investing for 21 years at Atlas. Um, you know, raised and invested two and a half billion dollars of venture capital. So he'd been doing this for a long time. And uh, I had met him with this guy that I was sort of like founder dating with. I didn't really know, uh, maybe a month or so. Stop me if this is like way too much detail. Okay, that's, um, that's what we want. All, okay, the, all, all right, the dirty secrets. Well, fine. I figured it's a fire. There's no fire, but I figured to be like yeah. a, have a glass of scotch or something. Um, and uh, and so we, I, I had, uh, you know, we we had gone to lunch or something with the, you know, there's just sort of three of us. And then I get an email from Axel. I don't know, a week later or something, and he's like, Yeah, you know. Um, you know, I really want to talk to you guys. I think what you're doing is really interesting, but don't bring your co-founder. And so, and we hadn't done anything formal. It was like just talking together, basically. And Axel was like, I really think that you're great, uh, and what you're doing is really interesting, but this guy you're talking to is like not that good. Um, and so, why don't you fire him <laughs> or like just get rid of that guy? Um, and that was like it was shocking to me, not because of any motivation or, or, or sort of intrinsic value, but because he was super honest. And very few people, especially in the, in the investing world, are that honest. They'll give you that level of feedback. Um, or if they do, they're doing, it, they're doing it for some other motivation or reason. And so that was a signal to me that, OK, this guy is different than all the other VCs that I've met before. And so that was a really like, OK, I, I don't know how this is going to work. He was a, you know, he's a big, fancy investor making millions of dollars a year. So uh, yeah, so it, 
it was uh, it was sort of a turning point in the in the sort of story of Bolt, where it was kind of humbling around trying to figure out what to do, and then this guy coming along saying, "Hey, I've been doing this for a really long time. I think what you're doing is interesting. It's weird. Uh, you know, I have a job. Uh, yeah, there's other place that's really formal and successful, and um, and I don't know how to help you exactly, but here's I'm gonna." I'm going to try. And so it was sort of initially like an advisor mentorship type thing. And then he kept always talking about investing as, as a, the sort of a key thing that Bolt was missing. It didn't really have that money component because I'm not an investor. I didn't know what a VC was. You know, um, I'm a product guy. And so uh, he, uh, he, was, he was really like the fundamental uh, sort of mechanism in order to work with these companies that are startups is by giving them money because every company needs money. Uh, and that sounds obvious now, but at the time, that was like, holy shit, that's right. Um, and so uh, that was like the sort of final piece of the like platform. And then Axel, of course, uh, as you might have guessed, has become you know a huge part of Bolt and a partner, and and the only reason we were able to ever raise you know forty million bucks and do all that stuff that we're doing now. So um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was a, that was a, I think the the sort of key sort of turning point is people in the story of most companies, and so you're always looking for that sort of special thing that someone has. Um, and usually you're looking for some really good positive quality and trying to avoid some really big negative qualities, which sometimes you see. Uh, so it's, a, it's just a very interesting thing to focus on. Yeah. So, so, so that's great, and it's a great segue. Uh, I've heard you explain before that um, you really don't describe Bolt as an accelerator. It's like a, like, a, like a venture fund. It's more like a fund. It's weird. So this comes from, yeah, I went to a school with no grades, no tests, and no majors. So obviously I have trouble with words. Um, so uh, it's very difficult to categorize uh, things in my view. And uh, because Bolt doesn't fit into a box, it's not like, oh, you're just like this other company doing this slightly different thing. Um, I've always struggled to like, come up with the right sort of terminology for what we do. And so, I don't know, maybe you guys have a better idea. So we, um, you know, on, on one hand, you know, our primary business model is we, you know, we raise venture funds. So we have a, you know, right now we're operating a $40 million venture fund. Um, so, you know, it's a small fund relative to some other folks that have been out there for a while. Um, but that's, a, that's our business model. And so we have general partners and limited partners and management fees and, you know, the whole thing that makes venture funds work. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you guys are curious. Um, and then, uh, so that's sort of standard. But then we have, uh, you know, $20 million machine shop. Uh, not a lot of venture funds have machine shops, um, and we have a uh, you know 16-person engineering staff, and so uh, uh, that's not a common thing that <laughs> venture funds have, especially at this size. And so you start to kind of start to think about how does that really, what what do you call that? I don't know. Uh, and so people use the term accelerator often or incubator often. Um, I don't necessarily think of us that way, but I don't really care. Um, so I think you could use whatever term you like, but there's no program, there's no like application, there's no like formal system. So if you can explain how it works, what what, what the Bolt sure. experience like? Yeah, sure. So uh, we invest in about a company per month, so it's pretty uh, frequent. We invest in somewhere between 12 and 15 companies a year on average, uh, and usually fairly uh, fairly small checks actually. It's usually between 100 and 500k. Uh, and then we, uh, but that's a very small part of the sort of investment that we make. It's really about the product. And so when we invest in the company, we spend somewhere between, you know, one and a half and two years with every company going through the first sort of product development sort of, sort of process. And so for most companies, they have a, you know, duct tape prototype with an Arduino and, you know, some crappy 3D printed thing or whatever. Um, and, they, and, and they sort of have a really good idea of where they want to go, but they don't know how to get there. Uh, and so we have, we sort of like bolt onto the company and say, okay, we're going to help you um, with, you know, mechanical engineering and electrical engineering and laying out the circuit board and designing the firmware and coming up with the, the right strategy for manufacturing and doing industrial design and all the stuff that the, the hardware uh, sort of part of the product uh, needs to get 
um, sort of worked into the company, but often hiring eight or nine people to do that when you're a tiny little company is silly. Uh, and you don't need that. You need a couple hours a week of every person's time. So, um, so we then sit down. You know, we do design reviews every Monday with all the companies. Um, you know, we spend uh, probably on average of uh, you know, ten to fifteen person hours per week per company, um, going through the sort of product development process with these guys. Uh, and then we get them to the perspective of their first production run. So, if you're making five thousand, ten thousand units, we sort of help the companies go through that process too, and so that means selecting the CM uh, contract manufacturing uh, firm that you're going to work with, um, dealing with uh, sort of supply chain management, how to order components, and dealing with that, uh, and selling those first five thousand or ten thousand units into retail if you're a consumer product or direct if you're a, if you're an enterprise product company. Um, I don't know if that sort of answers your question, but yeah, we probably yeah. will talk a little bit about each of those. Sure. But, but let's talk first about who, who who applies. I mean, what type of background are you? mostly engineers? Do you see just entrepreneurs with an idea? Uh, is there any ideal? Is it better if you have a technical background or not? Yeah, I mean, I think with any fund, it's pretty broad. Um, technical background is uh, probably ninety-five percent of the companies that we've invested in have, if not all, technical backgrounds. You know, at least one or two people. Usually, the sort of I think the median size is three people for the companies that we invest in. Um, almost always the first money in, so almost all the companies have never raised a dollar. Or if they've raised money, it's from family and friends, and it's usually informal and poorly structured, um, <laughs> which is very common. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. It uh, covers all sectors. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, about little, slightly more enterprise than consumer, which surprises a lot of people. But that's sort of the rough breakdown of the way we've operated uh, so far. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers all your, all your sort of type of questions, but yeah. Yeah, and and um, so so what is the what is the um, what is the process to, for application? How do you how do they reach out? How do, is there a date to apply, or nope. is it? Nope, there's no no program or, or application. So just like any um, venture fund out there, usually you want to get an introduction um, to us, which always helps because someone can speak for you that we know. Uh, but that's not required. We get about um, we look at about fourteen hundred companies a year. Uh, and so it helps to have uh, direct uh, input so we can see that this is not just a random person sending us an email or whatever. Uh, uh, but yeah, there's no, you know, again, we look at, you know, we do one company per month roughly. Um, but sometimes we'll do three in a month and sometimes zero. So it just really depends on, on sort of the, the universe. Um, yeah, th I, the best way is just, I mean, we're pretty open. You can email any of us on the investment team. Uh, almost, we try to answer 100% of our emails, which gets hard sometimes, but we try to do a good job. Uh, and there's also a little pitch application upload thing um, that you can just submit a pitch online, which I think is pretty common with most venture funds. But usually the best thing to do is to get an introduction. And that's true. That What I'm saying now is true for all of the investors that you ever talk to. Uh, if you can get a human to introduce you, um, ideally the, the best person is uh, someone in their portfolio. So someone they've already invested in that they already trust. Hopefully it's someone that they trust in a good way. Uh, it's not a company that they've decided they don't want to support anymore. Um, and then, of course, another investor that's, it, that's actually investing is probably the next best thing. Uh, and there's a whole sort of list of other things that you can do. But you want to have someone that the person you're, you're getting an intro to actually knows. And so that's probably the preferred method for us, just like any other investor. And are there any, are, there, are you seeing any patterns in terms of industries or types of companies? Is it more in healthcare more, or is it a wide? Yeah, it's everything. Yeah, so we, I mean, anything that has a physical component, um, which is, uh, you know, I think a big portion of businesses now, uh, you know, not half, but it's you know, more significant than it was a couple years ago, uh, is interesting to us. Uh, almost every single company has software in the product somehow, whether it's, excuse me, just, just in the product or it's connected to some iPhone or it's connected to the web directly or something. Um, almost always there's some sort of interesting sort of digital component to the physical 
product. And uh, as my one of my mentors says all the time, Brad Feld, um, uh, many hardware, many of the best hardware businesses are just software wrapped in plastic, uh, which I think is a very, very great term, um, which is true for a lot of the really good hardware companies. So let's talk about a little bit about that because there's been a lot of discussion about how easy it is to set up a, a software service company or versus hardware, and I think that divide has been breaking down a lot with the emergence on you know, yeah. smart objects and Internet of Things. Yep. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. How, sure. how, how do you see that actually uh, playing, especially with startups? So yeah, it's a great question. So um, I there's this term that you probably heard all the time: hardware is hard, which like drives me crazy because <laughs> it's. it's funny a little bit, but it's also silly. Um, everything is hard. Uh, building a, a software company is really hard. Uh, and so hardware isn't inherently more difficult than software, um, as I think represented by the, I mean, if you look at the top 10 uh, largest companies in the US in, in the technology sector by revenue, I think, tech, I think hardware companies are the top nine, um, or are nine of the top 10. Uh, and so I think the only one in the top 10 is Google. Uh, and so that's kind of astounding to a lot of people. Now, it's a little bit cheating because you're selling things that you bought from someone else to someone else. Um, and so the margins tend to be lower. Uh, so the market caps tend to be lower. But the revenue is higher. Um, and so if you go talk to those companies, they're not going to complain about how difficult hardware is. They know how to do it. And so the, the reason that people say hardware is hard is because they don't know what they're doing, uh, which is you know, fairly obvious to me that it's going to be hard if you don't know what you're doing. I don't know software, so I think software is harder because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to software. Um, so yes, you have to deal with you know supply chain management and dealing with contract manufacturers and injection mold tools, and there's often capital required to buy all of those things. But that is not the hard part of building a business. The hard part of building a business is hiring the right people and going into the right market and building the right product, which is the same thing that hardware companies deal with and the same thing that software companies deal with. So. Um, that gets me a little bit uh, hot when I when I talk about that. So, um, I think it's really important to try um, to try to understand the things that you think are difficult rather than say that they're hard, um, even though lots of things are really hard. And in 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 that sense, um, um, there's also this idea that that um, hardware becomes sort of a vehicle for software, or the idea that sure. the business models are different because you're not your business might not be setting the hardware itself, but selling the services through the hardware. Sure, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and totally. how do you advise in terms of business model or strategy for companies that are, yeah. are selling, are doing some hardware, but they're not, sure. might not be in, in the business of you know, just setting yeah, the I would I would go as far as saying um, I have zero interest in selling a piece of plastic at Best Buy for you know 30% margin. There's no interest in that. Um, it, is, it is a very, very tough business to do that reliably with high margin over time. Uh, which is why most of the companies that people are talking about when they say hardware companies are not like that at all. There's some secret thing going on, whether they're selling data or advertising or some service or subscription or a consumable or something. There's something else happening. It's not just a one-time sale. Uh, and so, of course, there are still big companies that do that and make billions of dollars selling you know, keyboards and speakers and whatever else there is. Um, but that is, uh, I think, becoming a, a, sm a smaller and smaller percentage. It's still huge, but it's a smaller and smaller percentage of the world of hardware that I think investors get excited about. Uh, and so for the vast majority of products, there is, uh, there is some digital, usually digital reason to sell a physical thing. And it almost always has to do with the fact that when you sell a physical thing, you can operate in a whole wide variety of environments. Whereas when you're selling something that's on a screen, you have to be limited to a two-dimensional thing that fits on a screen. And it turns out there's a lot of interesting things that you can do that don't require a screen, a screen um, or, are, or require more than just a screen. And, and so we, we and almost all other investors focus on things in that, in that area. And so uh, service businesses that are attached to hardware product businesses are really interesting. Um, anytime there's data or some sort of subscription involved, that can be some 
sometimes interesting. But it really depends on what the industry and market sort of dictates. And I think the biggest mistake people make is, oh, I'm a hardware company. I want to sell a thing at Best Buy for, you know, with a 30% gross margin. And then they're like, oh, but someone told me I need recurring revenue, so I'm going to tack that on somehow. Um, and that's really a bad way to build anything, uh, especially a hardware business. It really has to be fundamental to the product experience. Uh, and so that is actually a very hard thing to do really well. And so if you look at a company like Fitbit, which um, is pretty successful, and a lot of people are surprised how successful Fitbit was, I guess, when they filed their S1, that you know, they had sold 11 million units and you know, were massively profitable on $70 million of capital. Um, that's pretty unusual in the SaaS business. You know, most SaaS businesses go public before that point, way before that point. Uh, and so it's pretty interesting. It, it, was, it was surprising to most VCs to see that, uh, and I, probably lots of other investors too. Uh, and so, but that business is, again, it's a Trojan horse. Uh, the, the, the sort of hardware serves as this purpose to get software into your life in a different way. And so a lot of people don't know there's, I think it's 9 million uh, subscriber, you know, premium subscribers to the Fitbit service. They pay $60 a year or something uh, for the ability to access the sort of better, a better Fitbit platform and better analytics and sharing and other things. Uh, and that's a huge part of the Fitbit business if you do the math. Uh, so yes, the hardware is still a dominant player and a lot of people don't sign up for the service. But the reason that it's interesting to most investors is, is this sort of high margin recurring sale, which happens. And the, the rough rule is, you know, uh, a SaaS company's, uh, you know, if you make a dollar as a SaaS company, it's roughly, you know, worth about $8 to you in terms of your valuation. Uh, if you make a dollar as a hardware company, it's roughly worth a dollar. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you want to really carefully optimize to sell stuff on the, on the non-hardware side, which sounds ironic coming from a hardware investor, but it's a very important thing. Do you see a big distinction? I may have kind of two questions, but let me ask sure. the first one then. Yeah. Uh, do you see a big distinction between uh, B2C and B2B? You talked about a lot of the, your companies in, at Bolt are, are enterprise. Totally. And, yeah. and how, how is that idea of you know, hardware as a, as, a, as a Trojan horse even in, in side companies or company to company changing? And, and, or are the big distinctions between B2C and, and, and B2B? They are, they're not, they're not just different. They're like fundamentally, they use like different, it's like a different universe. Um, and so the reason for that is, is uh, consumer companies are really a, around building a brand. Uh, and so if you look at, you know, where a lot of money goes into big consumer products companies is, is building, you know, the Fitbit brand or the, like, GoPro is probably the best example of this ever, um, which is a product that is designed to market itself, uh, which is pretty cool. And so, you know, their whole thing is about sharing content and, you know, all kinds of weird videos they do with people jumping out of rocket ships and flying on space. I don't know. I don't understand it, but it's very good. Uh, and I know when I see, when I watch a GoPro video, I'm like, I want to be like that guy, so I'm going to buy a camera. That doesn't make any sense, but that's what people think. Um, There's this really funny article I was reading. This is kind of a tangent, but uh, about uh, it was sort of this like I think it was an Onion article about like a guy who saw a guy like skiing off of a mountain and bought a GoPro, and then like realized after he had uh, been watching all his footage, he like has videos of like his kids like playing with the dog outside in the yard, and like he's like it has nothing to do with the brand, and yet that was the reason that he bought it. Uh, which it, but it was written in like the Onion satire of like I'm so excited to like watch my kid play with the golden retriever in the yard. Um, it was pretty great. Uh, so. Yeah, it's, it's that, that brand is such a huge component and, and cost of building a consumer company. It winds up usually being the most expensive thing that you do besides people. Um, 
and uh, uh, in enterprise, it's not this go big or go home, you know, binary thing. It's uh, it's really about you know figuring out how to sell a product, and you do that one product at a time in the beginning. And, uh, and with consumer, you do it at at five thousand or ten thousand units at a time, and it's about these big deals and being able to afford the float to you know buy all this the 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 inventory you have to sell to the retailers and managing that and returns and all. It's a very different game, um, and so. Uh, which is why you know a huge portion of our portfolio is enterprise, uh, even though the significant majority of companies that pitch us are consumer, and so it, we're just more picky on the consumer side. So, in, in terms of branding and, and consumer, the way people um, perceive buying buying something, right? Um, you, you talked about the, the object being a Trojan horse to software. I think are there fundamental differences between how people think about buying a physical product and buying a digital service, and does that influence? Oh yeah, the, yeah. Uh, like I mean, I'm, tell me if I'm crazy, but like I, I think every single month about oh man, is Spotify nine dollars? Is that is that really worth it? <laughs> like I don't know if you guys have this experience, but every single little like app store purchase and thing, I'm like I don't know, um, and oh I need these paper towels or I need this. Alexa, or I need this random thing, uh, and it's just way more than all the money I spend on all, all the digital things. And I don't even think about it, um, and it's because I, I think you know everything comes back to psychology in my view, um, and it's because we're we're wired to like physical things. We've been doing it for a bunch of years, uh, and digital buying a thing that doesn't exist is a weird thing for our brain to understand, and so I think you're on average. Individual consumers are super sensitive to, you know, software-only purchases. Um, it's weird because I, I even think about buying software, but it was on a disc, and I used to feel more comfortable with that somehow. I'd go to like Best Buy and buy a the CD of like a browser or something, and I'd be ah, oh, fifty bucks—that sounds great. Um, and so it's this very interesting change in the way you think about stuff. And so that's actually to me one of the huge advantages of hardware is that people are wired to be okay to spend money on physical things. Uh, and so if you can do both, if you can sell a physical thing but also sort of sneak in with a, with a software thing, you have a really interesting business. And so I, I like to point to Dropcam a lot as I think one of the more interesting sort of consumer business models, which I think they sold their company too early um, uh, to, to Nest, Google. Um, but you know, they had a, they had a there's variable uh, accounts, but they, I've heard they've had a 60% attach rate on their service, which is outstandingly good. Um, that's insane. Uh, you know, usually five, 10% attach rates on things like this are good. Uh, and so this was people that buy the drop cam and you know Best Buy or whatever for 150 bucks, and then they pay nine dollars a month or whatever it is for the storage and analytics on on the back end. Uh, and that's an amazingly good business if you do the math over time. You know, if your average consumer uses it for 18 months or something, you've made a lot of high margin money on that service. And so it's a very interesting um, dynamic between how you sort of sneak in uh, and how, and how uh, versus the, the enterprise world, which is much more like this is the service up front and it's a contract for this many years and you sign it away and you kind of know exactly what you're getting. And that has advantages and disadvantages to the business model. A quick break from the interview with Ben for some recent startup headlines. Parent-teacher communication startup Blooms has raised $2.3 million from FF Venture Capital, 8VC, and others. Blooms allows teachers to use the web and mobile app to invite parents to a class group and other school activities. Teachers can also share photos and updates, schedule conferences, and send notices for volunteer opportunities, due dates, and more. According to Recode, Amazon Fresh is set to launch in the UK and other markets this year. Amazon Fresh allows customers to order perishable goods for delivery within 24 hours. This service is currently limited to only parts of California, New Jersey, Washington State, and New York City. 
Amazon already offers two-hour Prime Pantry in several markets, including will, the UK. Twitter will no longer count media links or app mentions toward the 140-character limit for tweets. Twitter will also let users retweet and quote themselves as well. Any new tweets that begin with a user's handle will broadcast to all followers, so the at name is no longer required. The feature is set to be released within the next few months. Let's get back to the interview with Ben. So, talking specifically about consumer products, um, sure. what would be your advice for uh, people who have startups that are thinking about, about that area? Uh, a lot of it has to do with focus on the product and develop your minimal viable product quickly, and you go into a lean process where you're thinking about the features. Sure. But it seems that you're saying branding is more important, the experience is more important. So yeah. what would be your advice? How should they think about it? Yeah, so it's one little silly clarification. It's not branding, it's brand, brand. Um, which is different. So that's like the whole experience of the, of the product and company. Uh, and so um, yeah, the logo and all that stuff matters. But it's really about I, my, I, when I purchase a thing, I expect X. And does that product deliver hopefully something more than what you expect? And those are the best products. Um, that have the longest life. And so, you know, it's the person who buys a Fitbit for whatever, 79 bucks, and then realizes that they need to depend on this thing. And they're like, oh, I have this addiction to like seeing how many steps I walk today. I don't fully understand it for me. Um, but I know that there are a lot of people, a lot of friends that like every single day, the first thing they do is put on their Fitbit or they sleep with it 24 hours a day. Uh, you know, and, and that to me is like, okay, you've, you've built a product that someone really identifies with. And so that is a, that is a you've built, that's a brand. And so uh, it's about you know health and wellness, and uh, in some ways I'm addicted to this thing that I need to use every day in order to feel happy. Uh, and so that is very much a fundamental um, uh, sort of part of the why Fitbit of why Fitbit is successful in my mind. Um, so building this brand is really hard. It's not something that I know how to do. Uh, it's not something, it turns out, that really anybody knows how to do until you do it. Uh, and then usually you don't know how to do it again. <laughs> uh, so it's this very weird thing that you have to kind of like, all the stars have to kind of line up. And there are a couple of people that are sort of repeat, like high-end brand builders, but it's very rare. Um, and more often than not, at least in the hardware world, you get someone who's really good at, at you know, lucky, lucky or smart, or I don't know, some combination of the two, uh, at building some incredibly good brand. And they do that for 10 or 15 years, and then it becomes hard for them to do it again. Uh, and so uh, it's very difficult to identify these people. Um, but there are a handful of them uh, that I've met, uh, at least retroactively. And so you kind of know, like, wow, you did a great job building, you know, Liz building the Dropcam brand. Or, um, you know, I think a lot of the guys at Nest did a pretty interesting job in the early days. I think they're kind of stumbling on some stuff now. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even the way Nick talks about GoPro is pretty interesting. So I, I think, I think um, people that really understand it in their DNA kind of figure it out. But it's very hard to, like, hire a guy um, to, like, figure out how to do that. And so almost always it's better to have, you know, someone at the company really early on at the fundamental level who, like, their drive is to build a brand. Uh, is, is there a connection with customer development there? I mean, uh, really understanding what people want, totally. continuously talking oh, yeah. to, to your customers? Absolutely. yeah. It's, I think it's more or less impossible to build a brand without knowing who your customers are. Uh, it's hard to build a product, but it's possible. It's impossible to build a brand. Um, because really what you're, what you're doing is you're, you know, in almost all cases, you're building these aspirational brands that someone wants to be like this thing. And in order to do that, you have to know, you know who they are and what they, where they live and, and how they think and how much money they have and where do they buy and what do they identify with, all these things that are pretty complicated to figure out for a, brand, for, for, for a company. And so I, it's not something I know how to do. So it's very hard for me. I'm like, oh, yes, you're very good, but I don't know how to like, help people do that um, other than find people that know what they're doing and talk to them, uh, which is, is the solution for most problems in companies. Do you have people at Bolt that, uh, I mean, is there a role for user experience design, product design at Bolt? Is there? 
No, we, we've, we've purposely stayed away from that. And so, again, our, you, you have to think about it from the perspective of the companies. Our goal is not to do everything. As my partner says, it's, you know, we try to teach uh, you know, companies to fish, not give them fish. Uh, and so we try really hard to kind of help them think through the things they don't know how to do. But our very strong opinion is the software and the brand of the company need to be built from within. And that's the soul of the company in many ways, those two things. And so, I don't know, it's hard to say. We haven't really seen it play out yet. Um, but my guess is that's the right way to go. And whereas, you know, if you're using the right, you know, tooling vendor, most customers don't care. They want the product to work. And so um, that's a sort of a, a sort of under the bar kind of uh, uh, sort of person that is very important to the company, but is not part of the soul of the company in the beginning. It becomes one later um, in terms of how you run product and how you do engineering and reliability. But a lot of that stuff is not fundamental in the beginning days. Let's talk a little bit about, about funding and, and growth and sure. maybe talk about your own experience with Bold. How did it happen? You just, just mentioned your story about uh, your partner being an investor, but how yeah. did that formalize you? How do you decide you were going to invest in companies? Um, and how does that happen for companies that go over on Bolt? There, is, it a, is it a fixed amount of money, $100,000, $500,000? It ranges. It, okay. it really ranges. Uh, and so we, you know, I think the smallest check we've ever written is $50,000, um, but we haven't done that in a long time. So. Uh, yeah, 100K, 200K, 300K is probably the more common numbers we've done, 500K. Um, and then we also have, we keep money in reserve. So we'll, as companies go out to raise more money, we'll put more money to work, um, if it makes sense. Uh, so um, that's sort of the, the sort of uh, sort of dollar amount stuff. But the, really, the hard part is figuring out how to raise money, um, which a lot of people really stumble with. Uh, and they, it's hard. It's really hard to do. And... Um, it's, uh, the, I think the key thing is knowing uh, strategically what's important, which is to build a company and to not raise money, <laughs> which is ironic. The best money you can raise is from customers, uh, and that's by selling a thing. <laughs> so I think a lot of people, it happens less here, but you know, I live half of my, a little more than half my time in San Francisco, and that is a plague. It's an epidemic. People um, judge their value based on how much money they've taken from other people, um, uh, which I find very strange to me. It's a weird, uh, it seems like a weird psychological thing. Um, I don't care if you've raised 100 million or a billion dollars. You have to return that money, and you have to return it from customers. Uh, and so you have to sell a thing at some point, and you have to make the thing, and the thing doesn't exist yet. So what the hell are you doing? Um, so I, I have this, again, this is sort of a personal fundamental bias against, uh, against raising too much money. So um, I think companies should really focus on uh, you know, getting it out of the way, having enough money to make enough progress to demonstrate what they're doing is interesting, and then continue to build the product in the company. Um, and so... That is, um, I don't know, that, that's sort of our, our ethos at Bolt. So many of our companies haven't raised more than you know, 10 or $20 million, it's, you know, which is relatively small for a hardware company. Um, but we encourage them to focus on building product. And so that means, um, that means they're, uh, they, they might look less good uh, from the outside, um, again, because we judge uh, the success of companies in some weird reason in the early days on how much money they've raised. Um, but it's really about, um, are you building a product that people love? And so I would much rather see uh, you know, a video of 50 users using your thing that are like, I love this thing. I could never live without it. Uh, then I convinced a fancy person to give me lots of money. Um, so I, I, maybe I'm a little bit weird in the regard of an investor where I think investing is actually a bad thing. Um, but I, I think it's, a, it's an enabler for building a company. And you should focus on the company part, not on the money part. And any advice for, for or is there any difference for hardware companies um, to get certain types of funding? I don't know if it's harder to get angel funding, or are there less VCs interested or VC funds interested in, in funding 
expensive hardware enterprises? Is that changing? Sure. Yeah, so it's definitely true that there are a subset of investors that are investing in hardware companies. That's totally true. Um, that won't change. Uh, it's going to increase, but it's never going to be like a majority of people are investing in hardware companies. That's just not going to happen. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It actually makes it easier because you know, okay, there are these five people that are really good at investing in hardware companies, and you can target them. Um, and so there are elements of it that are good. Uh, in terms of angels, angels are great because they're a little bit more risk tolerant um, because it's their own money, which seems counterintuitive, but <laughs> it's the way a lot of angel investors work. And usually it's because they get really excited about something, right? And they're like, oh, I can lose 50K or whatever, but I really want to help this person build this thing. And so angel investors are a great option for the early days of getting to what we call product market fit, uh, which is you sort of getting your first product out there that people really love. And so our, our tack has been, you know, at Bolt is to help the company get to that stage without raising too much money because it becomes a hell of a lot easier to raise money once you have a product that people can see and touch and see sales numbers for and look at user statistics for um, than it is if on a dream of I'm going to do this thing eventually. Um, and so um, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a tricky thing to do well. I think the most uh, useful thing you can do is build a product that people love. And if you build a product that people love, people will give you money to keep building it. It's really that simple. Um, and it might be, you know, if it's a small market or something, it might be different kinds of money. It might be government loans. It might be, you know, individual investors versus VCs. But focusing on building something that people really love using is the only surefire way I know to raise money. Um, it's also an extremely emotional thing, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand. They think of investing as, oh, I have a big market and a really good product. Look at how good my product is. Here's the feature matrix of why it's so good. And this is my great team. And they just go raise money thinking that that is a really effective thing. And like many things in life, I think a lot of things are extremely subjective based on emotion. And whether the investor, I don't know, had lunch right before they, you know, there's a whole study with like the judging thing that you guys may have heard of, the judges in, I don't remember what state it was, but um, that after, I think it was right before lunch, they were like four times more likely to convince someone. Um, you know, and it's it, these kind of silly things that sound goofy, but they're actually really critical to how you think about fundraising. And so, um, I mean, that's the lunch thing is a silly example, but don't schedule meetings at, you know, at 11 o'clock in the afternoon. It's not a good time. Um, <laughs> sorry, 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, think really carefully about how you look from the outside. So if you come to even us or any investor and say, man, I got $10,000 in the bank. I raised a million bucks, but I spent it all. And I haven't sold my product quite yet, but I'm really close. Um, that's, not a, that's not an emotional appeal, right? I'm not like, yeah, I'm excited to be part of this. Um, and so this is why you know, a lot of people call VCs lemmings. Like they just follow each other off of cliffs. I don't know if you've heard of this analogy before, <laughs> but it's pretty true. Um, but that comes from this thing called FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, which is a lot of investors see, oh man, there's this really smart person at Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz or whoever that is investing in this company. I need to invest in that company too. This company must be really good. And that is 100% emotional. It has nothing to do with how good the company is. It has everything to do with, I want to be like that guy. Um, and so play to that. Know, know what the emotional aspect is of your sale. Uh, and this is very true with, if you talk to you know, salespeople at companies, they know that emotion is a huge part of what drives you to buy something, which is why they go have drinks when they sell stuff, because you, um, your emotions are different when you're drunk. Um, so you know, there's all kinds of sort of silly, honest tips about how to do that. But, but it is a very, I think one of the most powerful things that I've learned is, is the, the emotional aspect of selling yourself is very compelling. 
Uh, and so thinking through not just the, you know, the five bullet points of why you're a good investment, but the, what's, what's the state of mind of the other person on the other side of the table is a very effective way of thinking. It reminds me of, um, I used to, when I, at my consultancy, every single person that I hired used to be forced uh, to read this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which you may know. Uh, it has a terrible title. Um, but it's, it's a really incredibly honest book about Making people genuinely feel good is a really effective way to sell them stuff, um, or you know, make them generally happy with you. Uh, and so it is very true for investors. They want to feel like they are part of this great next big thing. And uh, the only way to do that is to, I, I think, sell them on this emotional sale. Uh, and that might be you have a bunch of revenue, or you have a bunch of other investors that are competing for your company, or you have some you know, really important reason why you're such a great company and they need to follow you, or some great person, or whatever the thing might be. Um, but playing to that strength, I think, is really helpful for most companies when they're raising money. I want to talk a little bit about crowdfunding as well, because it's been a good place for a lot of hardware companies to um, start and we had uh, Maxime Lebowski on February talking about their experience with, with Kickstarter and all that. And I think this, this, there's this idea that um, crowdfunding or, or programs like Kickstarter or Indiegogo are just a way of, uh, it's just like, a, like, like a raising money. And it's just uh, uh, people think that this is going to be the, the money they'll use to make a product. Or, uh, and and, I, and is that, is that the, a way to, the right way to think about crowdfunding? Or? No. Um, I think one of the biggest plagues in the hardware industry and the crowdfunding thing specifically is I raised money from Kickstarter. That is really, I know you've probably heard this term before, it's a terrible, terrible, I don't know who came up with that or where that came from. Um, it couldn't be further from, from the truth. Kickstarter is debt. You should think of it as, as product debt. Um, just like raising you know, debt from a bank. It's like a loan. Okay? And the reason is that money has to be paid back to the people that gave you the money um, in the form of product. Uh, which is surprising to a lot of people. They don't think about that. So they raise their millions and millions of dollars or whatever. And even the really, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, coolest Cooler. I don't know if you guys have been following this thing, which is, I think, the most amazing flame out of all time. Um, so this company raises, I think, 13 or 14 million dollars on a crowdfunding campaign um, on Kickstarter, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they wind up spending all of the money and have delivered like a third of the product or something. Um, and uh, that's not good. Uh, that's not good for your brand. Uh, and they're trying to raise money from VCs, but they don't want to give them any money because they have this huge debt, right? They have, you know, if, if a VC gives them 10 million bucks, three or four million of that just goes straight into something that are, they already sold. Uh, no one wants to be a part of that. That is the worst kind of emotion to be part of. Uh, and so it is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Now, if you do it really well, so I would argue like the Formlabs guys did it right. Uh, there's very few companies that do this well, or at least it's becoming a little bit more popular. But the sort of common way of using Kickstarter uh, uh, is, hey, I had this great idea. Here's a render of a thing that I made. Here's a prototype or whatever. And yeah, the bill of materials, the cost, it seems fine, you know, and just like go for it uh, and talk to some, you know, newspaper folks and some journalists and try to get them to write about it. And, you know, it can work okay, um, but what winds up happening is you're almost always wrong with the costs uh, of your product. And you figure that out by the time uh, you have already taken someone's money. And so then it's too late. So that's what happened with the coolest guys. They uh, underestimated their cost. And so um, both on the tooling side and, uh, and the actual you know, cost of goods sold on the product itself. And so every unit they're selling at the price um, that they sold, they lose money, uh, which is not a good business, it turns out. Uh, and so 
they've had a big problem, with, uh, especially PR, um, trying to fix this, this hole that they've created for themselves. If they waited you know, a couple months, gone through the product development process, completely selected their CM, figured out their tooling costs and their, their full bill materials, they would have not had this problem. They would have charged more for the cooler, probably, um, but they would have a business that doesn't look like a sinking ship. And so I urge companies to do what Formlabs uh, did, which was they raised money before they uh, went through the crowdfunding campaign. I think it was a million and a half or 1.8 million or something. Um, and then they you know, hired the team that they needed to hire. They went through the product development process. They found their CM that they wanted to use. They figured out what their costs were pretty close. They were a little off, but they were pretty close. And then it became a sort of marketing tool. And that's a very effective way to use a crowdfunding platform. Um, but only once you have an engineering prototype and you know, you know what your cost of goods is and you've done the RFQ process, you've selected your CM, only then is it a good idea. Uh, and even then, it caters to a specific kind of audience. So many products aren't a good fit with the sort of crowdfunding world. So I, I think most companies I encourage to not crowdfund, uh, which sounds counterintuitive. But um, it's really become this very different thing, right? Like it used to be when it started, it was this kind of grassroots, like, let's see what happens. And if someone really likes my iPhone dock that I made, like, I'll give you some money. Um, and it was kind of, it had this like organic, like really cool feeling, which is why I love some of the aspects of Kickstarter about like the music and the art and like all the, like that to me is where crowdfunding really makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I would love to give you 10 bucks to help you record this album. No, you can get no one to give you money for it. That sounds awesome. And then I get a copy of it. That's great. Uh, whereas with, with hardware, it's now become this like industry where, I mean, there, I've, uh, we have a company that uh, actually just did one. They spent like $400,000 on like hiring a PR firm and like a video from this company, Sandwich Video, that charges like $150,000 to shoot crowdfunding videos. What are you doing? That's crazy. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand some of the metrics behind why people are getting so excited about it. There are some companies that uh, would have failed and then they do a crowdfunding campaign and then it's really successful and then they can raise money from investors. That happened to a handful of companies. But to me, like the standard way to launch a company using crowdfunding is kind of, I just, it seems strange to me. Um, and you still need to learn about your customers and you still need to figure out your costs and all this sort of basic stuff that every company has to go through. You just need to figure out how to pay for it in a different way. Let's talk a little bit about, about uh, the product development side of things and uh, in terms of um, uh, perhaps manufacturing and finding the right resources we work with startups. Um, is it a lot being done outside the US? Is it a lot still being outsourced to China or Mexico? Where are yeah. the places where things are happening and what's still better to do here in the US? Yeah, so it depends on what you're building. Uh, and this is a common misconception that I think many companies have in the hardware space is, oh man, I'm building a hardware thing, I gotta go to China. Uh, which is, couldn't be further from the truth. It is, um, it is a pretty amazing place. I suggest all companies that are building hardware go there. Um, almost as a learning uh, activity, it is a mind-blowing experience to walk through a factory of 200,000 people making Barbie dolls or whatever. It's really amazing. Um, and it has some elements that are sad too, so it's not all you know, rainbows and ponies. Uh, well, actually, I guess in that example, it's a lot of rainbows and ponies. But, um, <laughs> Um, so, so if you are building certain kinds of high volume, what we call low mix products, so you're making a lot of the same thing, then uh, China can make a pretty good amount of sense. Uh, if you are building, uh, you know, an enterprise product uh, that you're building, you know, a hundred of or a thousand of, uh, it doesn't make a ton of sense to do it in Asia unless you plan to scale extremely quickly, which enterprise products don't scale extremely quickly. So, 
something's wrong about something and you should talk to me. Um, so so the, I think the default option for many enterprise companies to build, uh, to build it yourself in the beginning. And so uh, this means you're typically having parts made elsewhere and then they're shipping them to you and you're doing the assembly. And it actually gives you uh, a little secret bonus, which is you get to learn what's wrong with the product that you design, which there's always something wrong. Uh, and so whether it's I can't fit a screwdriver here or it's taking too much power or the color's kind of funny or whatever, you get to learn that while you're doing it yourself. Um, and so then it becomes much easier to actually offload that process of assembling your product to someone else. So it just really depends on what you're building. And this is why there's no good like one-stop shop like book or websites like how to build a hardware company um, because it's so variable depending on what it is that you're actually building. And so the dynamics of you know, a 5,000 unit production run for your first you know, I don't know, toy, you know, consumer toy is fundamentally different than the first 100 units of your enterprise you know, presentation software and hardware system or whatever the thing might be. And so you really need to talk to people that have gone through the process of building these things before to know how to do it, which is sort of the reason that we started Bolt. So, so what, what are some of the interesting technologies in, in, in production, manufacturing, and making that you're seeing now come out that are, I mean, everybody's talking about it's way cheaper to build certain things, technologies making certain components cheaper. Sure. Yeah. But maybe there's some interesting technology you're seeing that can be applied even at the startup level, you can start researching and looking into what would you... Yeah, I mean, most things... Uh, I actually don't have a lot of experience in, like, manufacturing new technologies. And so... Uh, and I, that's because most people don't have a lot of experience in manufacturing new technologies. It's really rare. Uh, and so most companies that we look at uh, and most interesting companies that have been invested by other people and gone public or have been bought or whatever are basically taking commodity components... Uh, so they're taking, you know, off-the-shelf accelerometers and microprocessors and displays and whatever the thing might be, sensors of whatever kind, and putting it in some new package. Um, and so it sounds not very interesting, but it's actually, uh, it's a pretty cool way to think about how to build something. And I, I would argue software is almost identical. And so many times now you're not writing assembly code or even like low-level C code. You're using libraries and you're, you're sort of taking pieces of other things and combining them together. I'm dangerous when I talk about software, so stop me. Um, but it's it's a it's a, I think it's a pretty um, it's a pretty it's a pretty unique thing to say hey I want to manufacture this product with some totally new thing that no one's ever done, and almost always it means you're doing it wrong because almost everything that has been built uh, has been built with the same you know 17 different technologies, uh, which is kind of stunning. Um, but you know you look at things like injection molding for plastic or for casting for metals or whatever the thing might be, and the vast majority of products that people build are made using those technologies. And so it really hurts a startup to try to go outside of that boundary. Um, you know, there are things, uh, there, there are some sort of semi-new things that are, you know, pretty popular. Um, uh, things like uh, laser welding, uh, which has become really popular, ultrasonic welding. Um, uh, you, there are some companies that do CNC machining for high volume production, which is totally crazy. Um, so you look at like Apple's um, you know, laptop line, those are all actually machined from billets of aluminum, which is sort of mind blowing to me. Um, so we can get pretty technical if you want, but for the, for the most part, using off the shelf stuff you can buy and then putting it together into some custom sort of piece of plastic or metal or whatever the thing might be is the sort of better option for most hardware companies, just because they don't have the money to like develop some new technology. So I'm going to ask a couple of last questions and then open it to, to, to the audience. Sounds good. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about Boston. You're, you have, you have a headquarters here and you're also in San Francisco. Uh, what's the big difference between the two places in, in, in your mind? And I also wanted to ask you, the second question is, you have a partnership with Y Combinator. Yep. So maybe talk about those two things, Happy Boston, to. San Francisco, and Y Combinator. Sure, yeah. So um, we, we opened an office in San Francisco about a year ago, nine, nine months ago. 
And it's pretty interesting. It, so um, there is a lot of stuff going on in San Francisco. Just, I don't know if, how many people here have spent time there. Um, it, is very, uh, it is very busy. Um, there's lots of people working on, on startups. It's sort of like all startups all the time, which is actually one of my problems with San Francisco. I like other things, which is weird, I guess. Um, but sometimes it's nice to hear people talk about the book they're writing or the play they're reading or the movie they're going to or something instead of, I raised a Series A from this company and I shipped this thing and the scripts. And they're talking about always scripts for computers, not scripts for movies. Um, I just, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing to hear that around Boston. That's one of the reasons I really like being here, um, is people do other things too. Um, I think uh, it's the vast majority of the companies are um, consumer companies. And that's good because the vast majority of people that know what they're doing when it comes to building consumer brands and consumer um, products are in San Francisco, in my experience. Um, there is a, you know, probably, I, I don't, I think the actual number is somewhere between 30 and 40, but uh, there's a huge uh, exponential increase in money uh, in San Francisco in terms of the dollars of venture capital raised, um, and so uh, raised and invested, and so um, that's an interesting dynamic. Um, but for the most part, it's it's uh, you know, I think a portfolio is roughly half. Um, so it's not like we moved to San Francisco and then all of our companies come from there. Uh, it's it's definitely. Uh, we're really committed to Boston, and really, we have a lot of companies in New York. We have a lot of companies in Canada, um, and a good number of companies in San Francisco. And so we're sort of open to companies coming from wherever. Um, on the Y Combinator thing, um, I mean, it was pretty interesting. So we had, um, I don't know how, how many people are familiar with Y Combinator, but it's this pretty interesting sort of accelerator uh, sort of a program in, in Mountain View. And um, I got an email about a year and a half ago from this guy, Sam Altman, who runs uh, Y Combinator now. He sort of took it over from this guy that used to run it, Paul Graham. Uh, and Y Combinator actually started in Boston, which is always, I always find an interesting story. And they moved out there and became this pretty big thing. Um, and you know, they invest in a staggering number of companies, about 120 companies every six months. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really an unbelievable uh, thing that exists. And they are starting to do more and more hardware companies. They had 31 hardware companies in their most recent batch. And uh, they're all in huge trouble. <laughs> uh, and so uh, Sam uh, was like, I really need help, uh, basically. He was pretty honest, actually. We have, you know, we have all these hardware companies, and they're struggling to do a lot of things that are, um, are really helpful. Um, and, uh, and so we, we created this little relationship with them where we uh, talked to a lot of their companies. And uh, the idea is uh, they get value out of that um, from, um, from you know, the experience that we have building hardware. And then we get to work, you know, spend time with the companies, and hopefully we make some investments with them. And so that was sort of the initial foundation. Um, you know, it's not some super crazy formal big thing. It's just we spend time with some hardware companies. Yeah. So maybe just to close, uh, what advice would you have? I mean, you've touched on a lot of points, but for people here and maybe they're going to be watching the video, sure. um, advice if they are thinking about it or just getting started, what would be a great good steps uh, to, to do uh, to, get, to, get, to get the ball rolling on, on their startup, especially if it's focused on hardware? Sure. Um, so I think like anything, it comes down to team. Uh, and so the people that you work with, as a sorry, story I told about, uh, about Axel, uh, is definitely the most important decision that you make as a founder. Uh, it is the number one reason that companies fail is uh, founder dynamics. So there's a fire, they fire someone or whatever. Um, even in companies that succeed, it's almost always a problem too. Uh, and I, I don't know if you've paid attention to what happened to this company, Cruise Automation, which was actually a Y Combinator company that GM just bought for a billion dollars. They were pre-product. And uh, about, I think about a week after the announcement happened that they were being bought by GM, one of the co early co-founders of this company who was sort of fired slash departed, um, said, oh, where's my 50%? Uh, 
uh, and they're in a huge legal battle now that's very public and it's pretty nasty. Um, so pick your partners wisely. Uh, that's the single most important thing. And remember that it's not just your founders, it's the whole ecosystem of people you create. Um, the contract manufacturer you hire is just as much a part of your team as your co-founder is just as much a part of your team as your VC. They all control your company in one way or another. And people forget that. They treat people like, just do this thing that I told you to do. Uh, and I think that's a, inherently a dangerous way to, to sort of think about and treat people in life. Um, so I, I've always found like if you work with really good people, a lot of these problems go away. And um, you feel compelled to work harder and support them, and they want to support you and work really hard for you. And that, that relationship is really powerful. Um, so I, I would argue that's the single most important thing that companies can do to be successful and be happy. Great, thank you so much. So I just want to open it to questions. I'll pass the mic um, so we can get them on the audio. And let's just get started. Who wants to uh, talk to with Ben? Thank you. Sure. Hi. How would you measure successful outcomes, and how have your companies done? Sure. Um, uh, those, those are complicated questions. Um, I'll start with the, the last one, uh, which is we're two and a half years old, and so our companies have done exactly as they should be doing in two and a half years, which is raising money, selling product, no outcomes, uh, one failure out of 32, which isn't that bad. Um, I think uh, there will be more. Uh, more companies will fail, more companies will ship product, more companies will raise money. Uh, uh, outcomes are measured in the venture business by returns on capital, so we hope that we return a lot of capital. Uh, so that's sort of our primary metric. Um, that's not my primary metric. My primary metric is building companies that provide lots of value to their companies, or to their customers, and uh, that seems to be happening in droves. And so we hope that that continues and the companies continue to scale and love their product. Um, sorry, your first question was, um, sorry, remind me again. Success. Measure success. Yes, yeah, sir. Um, so, in terms of in terms of the way we think, um, it's really oriented around um, uh, getting to market faster than they would otherwise. And so, as a fund, we think very carefully around: Are we adding real value to the company? And that means: Is the product better than it looked like before? Are they thinking through strategic issues about how to design or develop that product earlier than they would have thought otherwise? Um, and again, I feel uh, those are fairly subjective metrics, but uh, we feel like we're doing okay in that regard. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I have two questions to you. Well, one of them, if you maybe could give a few examples of your portfolio, recent investments, sure. and then elaborate a little bit why you were excited about those companies. Sure. This is this is the first one. And the second one is, uh, it relates a little bit to what was asked uh, before. So your success as an early stage investor ultimately depends also on follow-on uh, investors, course, which yeah. you said that is not a very crowded environment. But sure. luckily, there are a couple of folks which totally. are doing this. Yep. But of course, uh, further down the road is also about acquisitions and uh, this is about involving industry and large enterprises that will be interested in those companies. So I, my question is, what is your strategy in this regard and how are you thinking about this? Uh, what, what is the ways to get exposure? How do you involve these folks? Sure, totally. So, uh, I mean, we have a bunch of companies that I find interesting and I'm excited about, so I love all of my children equally. Just want you to know. Um, I, I would say, uh, I don't know, I can, uh, I'll pick ones that are easy to explain, uh, which sometimes helps. Um, uh, so we have a, a company that I think is, is, is pretty neat, which is doing, um, it's a tip jar, um, but for credit cards instead of cash. So if you walk into a you know, Starbucks or whatever and you want to give a dollar to your barista, uh, I oftentimes don't carry cash anymore. I usually pay with a credit card, so it's kind of annoying to like 
take out a credit card and then take out uh, cash. Uh, and this is a very common experience. A lot of uh, industries have watched their cash gratuities go significantly down over the last couple of years as people continue to switch over to credit cards. Um, and so these guys build a little, uh, a little. Uh, it looks like a little tip jar, um, but instead of uh, you know a hole where you throw dollars into, it's a little slot where you throw credit cards into. Uh, and you sort of dip the credit card once it's a fixed dollar amount, so there's no interaction, no buttons, no uh, selecting what to do or, or anything like that. You just have to dip your credit card and the tip is, is done. Uh, so super simple business. The product is it's totally self-contained. It's on, a cell, on the cell network, so there's no setup, no Wi-Fi, no Bluetooth, no complicated anything. The store owner just plugs power into the device that's on the network, and then they can change if I want to charge a dollar or two dollars or whatever the amount is for a tip. It just displays a little tip on the little screen. Um, and then they take a, a percentage of the transaction. And so that's sort of the way they, they operate. I, I think it's really good to support service workers that uh, really don't make a lot of money. And uh, if they see their tips go down, they're really less excited about working at your Starbucks or your you know, bakery or whatever. Um, they're doing a big, uh, a big rollout with Salvation Army. Uh, Starbucks is doing a big pilot. Um, uh, the Robert McDonald Foundation has a bunch of them. You know, they do the little, little dollar, I don't go to McDonald's, but I think they used to have these dollar thing somewhere. Um, so they're doing a bunch of there. So um, I, I just, I, I find that a really interesting space and product. It's totally detached from the point of sale system, which I think is a really nice business thing. You don't have to integrate with Micros and all these big companies. Um, uh, I don't know if that's, that's a good example. Um, let's see, uh, I'm going to pick something on the enterprise side. Um, let's see, um, oh man, so many. Uh, we have a company doing uh, called Concrete Sensors, which you uh, might guess uh, senses things about concrete. Um, and so they have these little uh, little pendants uh, that you uh, that, con that that contractors at big buildings, typically commercial, you know, large commercial concrete buildings, um, which con concrete, as uh, I learned, is the single largest sold thing in the world. Um, so more concrete in terms of dollars is sold in the world than anything else, um, which is kind of mind blowing to me. Um, and so, uh, so they hang uh, these little sensors off of rebar in the building before the concrete gets poured. And then the concrete gets poured over the sensor as into the wall or the floor. And it uh, wirelessly broadcasts the, uh, the, the cure, the sort of the cureness and the tensile strength of the concrete in the wall. And so for two years, this thing is just sitting there you know, saying, hey, I'm 50% you know, cured, 50% cured, and this is strong. Um, and the, and the, uh, the, the construction folks can, uh, can judge if the concrete was poured correctly, uh, if it's strong enough to pour the next layer, if the temperature was too high or too low and it's not ready to go. Um, and so that's a, you know, I think, again, a really neat application of putting sensors into walls, uh, which is something that a lot of people, I never thought about before. Um, and, you know, again, really early, but just starting to sell. They're doing their first, they have a stadium that's getting built with their sensors in it. Um, so there's just these cool things that are starting to happen around, around the sort of concrete world. I could sit here for five hours and tell you about all the companies, so I'm going to stop that. Um, uh, the second question was about acquisitions. Uh, so we don't uh, think about that, actually, uh, which is an easy answer. So uh, most companies are, it's a long road to get to the stage where you're ready to sell the company, uh, whether it's to someone else or to the public market or whatever. Uh, and so we focus on, again, on sort of what I was talking about before, on building really great uh, sort of products that customers love uh, for the companies. And it turns out that that has a really good correlation with companies that get acquired. And so if you, um, I don't know, if you look at all the sort of consumer product companies that have been acquired in the last couple of years, they all have products that people really are attached to. And so whether it's Fitbit or GoPro or Nest or Oculus or whatever, there's some inherent uh, value that's being created by the product. And so our opinion is we focus on that uh, and the other stuff comes. And whether that's money or 
an acquisition offer or the company getting so big they have to go public or whatever, we don't really care. Uh, uh, obviously, those are all great options. And uh, the companies that we have in our portfolio so far, their only metric is money that they've raised uh, because they haven't gone through the whole process of getting to the stage where someone wants to pay hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to, to own that company. Uh, hopefully, that will happen. Otherwise, I won't be doing this for very long. <laughs> so it's a really important part of, of the story. But it's just too early to tell. Yeah. Some other questions here and then there. So I guess my, my question is around, um, I, I was on VoltDB's, um, well, Volt VC's website, and cool. I, I read a little bit into PetNet. So sure. they blame you guys, of course, in a good way for 100 per, uh, 180%, I think it said, of subscription <laughs> yeah, on their sure. first that was a long time ago. round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, do you guys, did you guys follow on with a, an additional round? Is, is that, are you no. guys in it for the long run? No, so or? they blame us, blame us uh, for them raising too much money. Um, because we made their product go from not working um, to looking pretty good. Right. Um, and so uh, that's the best kind of blame, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't put any additional money in, just the initial check that we wrote, which was tiny. I think it was 50000 bucks or so. Um, and then we spent a year and change helping them like build the product and find the right CM and kind of go through the whole process of actually building the company. Um, you so know, it's really still, just the seed stage that you guys are interested in. Yeah, and it's helping you know introduce them to the right people, the right people and make right, sure the okay. product is ready to go. Um, we had this. The, I think them in particular had this. Um, re they had a really big architectural problem, um, which is I don't know if I should go into too much detail here, but um, it's kind of a fun story. They um, PetNet. I don't know if you guys are familiar with PetNet. It's a big. Uh, okay, so it's a big. Um, it's a big pet feeding system. And so their goal is to sell food, actually. So they're a pet food business, direct to your door. Um, but they sneak into your house with a f with a feeder. And so you have this sort of mechanical uh, box that you know you put food into, and there's a little bowl that the, that the food gets dispensed into, and the dog or eating their cat eats out of the food, or out of the bowl. And so that thing is a bit, it's a big box, right? So it's this big you know, thing like this big. And big boxes are one of the worst problems for retailers. And so if you uh, ever go to like the supermarket, like noodles and cereal, they're all on the bottom in bags. It's awful. It's a bad place to be. Um, and so it's because your eyes don't look naturally to the shelf. So a lot of people don't understand in, in the retail world, there are, you pay a premium to be on certain shelves. And those shelves can make the difference between you being successful or not successful. Uh, and so PetNet made a, uh, I wouldn't say mistake, but they had this sort of dynamic of their business where they had a big product that was in a big box that winds up on the bottom shelf in Best Buy and Target and Petco and PetSmart and all the stores. Um, and you, because of that, you have one of them sitting there because it takes up a big space. And so uh, retailers restock their shelves maybe, you know, on average once a day. Some do it twice a day, but it's pretty unusual. Usually after everybody leaves in the evening, they have a night shift that goes around and puts some extra products out that got, that got sold that day. And um, uh, this is a problem. If you have one on a shelf and you sell one at 10 a.m., when the store opens, you don't sell any more that day. And that's a huge issue for a hardware company. So um, we coaxed them to redesign the product so that instead of having all the intelligence in the feeder, it was actually in the little tiny bowl. And it sounds silly. Um, they still sell the thing as a feeder, but they're just about to launch just the bowl by itself. And the bowl by itself means that you can have nine of these uh, deep in the shelf. And so in the space, you would have one huge box on the bottom shelf. You can now have nine little boxes on the third shelf, which is the best shelf to be on in Best Buy. Um, and that allows you to hopefully sell nine of these things and get them into your ecosystem. And then you're trying to still sell them food and services and whatever the thing might be via the app. 
And so that's a thing that no hardware company would ever think about. They would say, oh man, Target wanted to buy some units from me, and this is great. They would never think strategically about how to actually optimize the product to get into uh, the maximum number of households the fastest. And so we made that decision when it cost, no, it cost zero. They just had to change the design a little bit. Um, versus if you already tool up and build the whole product that way, then you have to go through and redesign the whole thing if you want to add the bolt. Uh, and so this was, uh, you know, I think a really important st sort of strategic thing that we did early on in the company that they haven't even seen the, the sort of outcome yet. It's been, that was, a, that was two years ago. Um, and they still haven't, you know, haven't shipped that product. So, so I think it's things like that that help, um, it helps the company think strategically about how to roll out the next product, the next roadmap. And uh, investors, turns out, are really interested in companies that think strategically. Um, and so we sort of helped them get to that sort of stage. And that was the thing that they talked about a lot when they were raising money. Right. Yeah. Sorry, that was kind of a long story. But. <laughs> one, one more. In. Yeah, no worries. Hi, Ben. Thanks. This hey. has been great to hear a lot about uh, hardware, finally. So okay. I started in aerospace engineering earlier in my career. Ooh. So my mind always goes back to reliability. So sure. we've talked about product market fit building new products, selling new products, but eventually you're going to have to build reliable products and not have to worry, worry about warranties and stuff down the road. So I was just wondering what type of thinking you guys do around reliability today and how you're setting your companies up for the future. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, reliability is hard, as you know. Uh, in certain industries, it's paramount. So if you are in the aerospace industry, it's probably of all the industries in the world, that maybe like nuclear reactors might be more or something. But there are, you know, there are very few industries that are, require have more stringent requirements around reliability and, and, and MTBF um, for, than, 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 than airplanes in space. Uh, and so uh, we usually think uh, a little bit about it, but it's really, especially in consumer, it's about uh, being uh, reliable enough. Uh, it's not about being you know, the best you can possibly be. And so um, actually more often than not, we're spending time on cost optimization and scale optimization and tooling costs and those kinds of things. Um, in the early days of a hardware company, you're really, um, unfortunately, you don't actually care that much. You, you, your product needs to be reliable enough such that the consumer feels good that they bought your thing, but it doesn't be, need to be reliable enough such that it's uh, you know, perfect for life. And that's typically a sign of over-engineering, unfortunately. And so, like, I don't know, I'll use Fitbit again as an example. I keep talking about them, but they had, you might remember they had this, their first product wasn't on your wrist. It was this little clip. You may, I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was a piece of junk. Um, I owned one. I was foolish enough to spend 150 bucks or whatever on this little piece of blue and black plastic. And you would clip it on your, on your pant, on your belt or whatever, and it would do the same things that the arm thing does, just a lot worse. Um, and so it would break. People like, I, I, this happened to me. I washed it because you put it on your pants and you forget. And they would just send you a new one. You know, and they did that for years, for like four years. Uh, they had, you know, had three SKUs all based around the same sort of platform with this plastic you know, thing that you clip on your belt. And their policy was it takes us a lot more time and energy and money to redesign this product to be super reliable than it does just to send the 10% of people. Uh, and so as sad as that sounds, um, they would just focus on building a product that people love using so much that when it broke, they would call the company and be like, please, 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 I need a new one. Um, and so... I don't know, it's kind of like anti-answering your question, but like, that's, a really, that's a really compelling way to think about reliability for consumer it's companies. Perfect for consumer. Yeah. And I, as, you, as you were taking us to that story, I'm just wondering a little bit more about your enterprise companies now. Sure, yeah. So they're building tens or hundreds of units. Yeah, so it's really different. Yeah, so with, with enterprise companies, reliability is, depending on what it is, is variable. So um, uh, I would argue that for, like the concrete guys, 
Reliability is really important. This thing is sitting inside of a concrete wall. You're not getting it out. <laughs> so the thing's got to work. They have, a, I think, a guarantee of a year, but it's really lasts, the battery lasts for two years. Um, and so if they, you know, I don't know, build the stadium and have whatever, a thousand of these things sitting in the stadium walls and six months into it, they stop broadcasting their signal, uh, that's a huge problem that you just, you know, your primary value proposition just got shot down. Um, if you are, we have companies that build, like let's say you have a little box that goes into, you know, we have a, we have a company that builds a, um, uh, uh, how do I describe this? It's like a wireless monitoring system for businesses. So you want to know, like, oh, I'm sitting, when I sit in the corner, I don't get very good wireless. What the hell's going on? So they build these little boxes that you put around your office, and it measures the quality of Wi-Fi and cell signals, and reports that back up to the cloud where IT administrators can, can, can look at it. If that breaks, it's not a big deal. It sends a signal up to the cloud. It says, hey, I'm broken. They automatically send a new one. Um, and that is, in the scheme of I'm paying tens of thousands of dollars per customer to, you know, to use this product, sending another $500 piece of plastic is not a big deal. Uh, and so it really depends on what you're doing. And, and that's one of the hard, again, the hardest parts about hardware is that it's very like spiky. Things have very different parameters depending on what industry you're in. Uh, and so it really, it really unfortunately depends. Question is like, uh, how can we find good hardware people? as the employees? I don't know, but if you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, catch. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's, it's hard. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll tell you a story. I, um, you know, we just hired uh, um, a new mechanical engineer for our uh, San Francisco office. I interviewed 124 people. You know, it takes a long time to hire good people. I spent maybe not full time, but like a lot of time every day for a long time interviewing people. Um, and so this is why I really believe that hiring the best people is really hard. And this was, uh, I spent, you know, after we found the guy, I spent six months convincing him to leave his, you know, really well-paid job at Apple to come work for us. Uh, and so that is, uh, I think, a very necessary evil that companies have to go through to find really good people. But different industries and different people are, you find them in different places. And so it's really about thinking through, okay, if I was this kind of really good person doing this kind of job, where would I be? And then you have to kind of like go through that process to find out where they would be. Uh, and it is, it is hard. There, it is literally the single hardest thing of building a company is finding good people. And whether you're hardware or software or science or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just hard to find good people. And, uh, and so a CEO uh, and a founding team that knows how to hire well is one of the single best qualities that you can find in a, in a, in a company as, a, as an investor. So sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Cool. Uh, yeah. Peace. And, uh... Thanks, guys. TopTal is an amazing company. They've got over 2,500 developers and designers in their network. They've screened them extensively so that you get to work with only the top 3%. So basically, you just let TopTal know what you're looking for. They understand your business and technical requirements, and they search for the right person for the job. You don't have to do all of the screening and interviews that you normally would, and they make it really easy for you. You can even do part-time hires that are a few hours a week, and full-time hires too. You can get an amazing no-risk-free trial for up to two weeks. Get started with TopTal by emailing laura at startupgrind.com. The best part is that you can work with the developer and designer, and if you're not satisfied by the end of the trial, you don't pay anything. TopTal pays the talent. So to get started with this trial, email laura at startupgrind.com.